Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Crime Hour. This week we're talking about John Wayne Gacy. Yep, also known as The Killer Clown. Although this story has been covered many, many times because it's like he's like a very well-known um uh serial killer. It's been, you know, everybody has their take on how they see this um person i guess like i feel like even though he's as famous as um ted bundy everybody still has something to say about ted bundy and everybody still had their opinion on john way gacy so with that being said let's get into it john wayne gacy was born in chicago in 1942 the only son of Marion and John Gacy Sr. Yes, so because he was named after his father and so that we're not all confused, whenever I'm talking about the father, I will just refer to him as Sr. If that makes sense. His mother was a pharmacist and his father was a functional alcoholic where he was still able to go to work. Growing up, John was physically abused by his father who was often not available or he was just so in- intoxicated, he probably didn't even know what he was doing, but he also abused his wife. John was very close to his mother, but his- to his father, he was the total disappointment, which is really sad because I know like parents say, oh, we just want the best for you. And I get that, right? Like, I don't have kids, but like, you know, um, I feel like I'm a daycare teacher, so like... I feel that like even though they're not my kids I still want the best for them right like that's why you know teachers and like parents they just want you to succeed but I feel like with fathers it's like because mothers are so nurturing and caring and loving I'm not saying that fathers aren't but fathers have that um like they have what do I call it like I guess like a status to maintain right like oh I have to be successful like I'm like this um like a businessman or just someone that has like a great job and can provide for a family like that's their thing right that's I think that's what fathers or like men have I would say so they're really strict with a child because they want their like child to succeed like that so his father often would come home from work and go straight into the basement where it was his workshop and he wouldn't interact with anyone and although senior had the mentality that john should be just like him a businessman someone who was admired by the community um senior often just called john like oh, you're such a sissy, you're a mama's boy, you're so stupid. And he would constantly remind him that he was a failure. Which really sucks, because that obviously takes a toll on a child, like, mentally, right? Because it's mentally abusive. And that's really sad, because it's like, your, your kid, like, yeah, you want your kid to be just like you, but like, how did you get there? right? I'm sure it wasn't because you were abused, or maybe he was. Who knows? 
When John entered his teenage years, he would complain of body problems like he had headaches, dizziness, faintness, but all Senior would hear was, you're weak, you're just weak, and you're not going to be successful. You're complaining. At 11 years old, John was struck on the head with a swing, which led to a series of blackouts that would probably explain the dizziness and like the faintness and, you know, all of that. But Senior would just accuse him of faking it, just wanting attention. By the time John entered high school, he was tended to fail. Um, Due to his ADHD, he had a hard time focusing. Um, But beside that, um, he was still able to talk himself out of trouble. And he would entertain people by telling them stories. Which is great, because it's like, you have a shitty house life with your father, right? Like, imagine going home and you're just going to hear your father, like, bickering at you. So it's great that he was able to, like, go to school and, like, I guess be a normal kid, right? Like, tell stories, hang out with people. By 20 years old, John had no qualifications, so he packed up his stuff and he left Chicago and he went to Las Vegas on his own, where he found a job cleaning in a mortuary. I think I'm saying that right. Um, But you already know I make a lot of mistakes. Bear with me. Although it didn't last long, he used whatever money he had saved up and he went back to Chicago. But this time when he came back, um, because he had that job, he wanted something more. So he enrolled himself in a business college. Good for him. Good for him. By 21, his business talents got him a job as a manager for a shoe store. So he's clearly getting somewhere, even through whatever he went through as a kid which is great and you know what I think it's also a part of him that was like um he's doing it because he probably wants to please his dad and show his dad that he could do it even with no qualifications he could be that businessman you know which is great this excited John as he found a successful career that can match up to the expectations of his father In September of 1964, John met and ended up marrying Marlon Myers. Marlon's father saw the potential in John and appointed him as a manager of his three fast food franchises, KFC, in Waterloo, Iowa. So John and Marlon start their new life in Iowa, where they had two children. John was now seen as a family man, a businessman, and a popular member of the community. So... He got all three things, the three things that his dad has always told him to be successful, community man, and, you know, just a great businessman, right? So he's got, he's got them all now. So to the public, they appeared to be the perfect family, although to John, this meant nothing. It it was just an image that he put up with society so people won't judge him and they just see him as, you know, oh my god, he's a family man, he's a businessman, you know? And on the side, although this was all just an image to cover it all up, on the side, he was abusing teenage boys sexually and threatening these boys. Now, I'm not saying he was influenced, but... He didn't have the greatest role model growing up as a man figure, right? 
And I'm not saying that it's not his fault because he did choose to do it, but I blame the dad. I blame the dad. His dad abused him, and now he's abusing teenage boys. In 1967, John lured a 16-year-old named John Tully to his home. They watched pornographic movies, drank, and played pool. Then, without warning, he forced Tully on to the bed at knife point, handcuffed him, and started to choke him. Well, that took a turn. John was later arrested and charged with sodomy and sentenced 10 years at the age of 26. He was sent to Anamosa State Penitentiary. That's so sad. At 26, you threw your life away, right? Fellow inmate Ray Cornell became John's close friend while they were in prison. Now, this prison had very dangerous inmates, right? Like, there were numerous murder attempts. So, John was very careful, and he did not tell them the whole truth of what happened, because he didn't want to die. Um, so, when they asked him what he was in for, he just told them that um, he showed pornographic videos to minors and that was really low so the people were like okay there's no point in murdering him he the, the crime that he did is not that big which is a lie because a crime is a crime and obviously you were put there for a reason christmas of 1969 john received news that would affect him emotionally and it was that his father had passed away and he was not permitted to attend the funeral because he was stuck in prison. Which is really dumb because I know people who, well, I shouldn't say I know, but like, you know, I've heard of stories where people are, you know, stuck in prison. But if a family member had passed away, they were um, allowed to be free for that one day to attend the funeral. Obviously, somebody would be there to supervise you and then after the funeral service or whatever it is you would just go straight back to the prison so it's really sad that he was not able to attend the funeral i mean like sure his dad was abusive and stuff like that but it's still his dad right like i don't think anybody in this world would be able to go and not attend their parents funeral no matter what the relationship was. In 1970, John's good behavior paid off, and he was released after serving only 18 months instead of 10 years. Now, that's a big year, like, that that's a big gap, right? Like, all those years. He's now divorced, and he returned to Chicago, settling in a neighborhood of Norwood Park Township. He continued to show himself as a community man and later remarried to Carol Hoff, who had two children from a previous marriage. But again, this is just an image and he's still putting it up. In 1971, John was charged with disorderly conduct after a teenage boy reported him of trying to pick him up at a local bus shelter and force him to perform a sexual act. You see, there are people who quote-unquote, learn from their mistakes, and then there are people who were just not, you know, like, they did not learn, and this was John, 
you know, he was already arrested. He was sentenced 10 years. He only got out because of good behavior. But he's back at it. So he didn't learn nothing in prison except how to survive, really. And it's really sad because it's like, come on, man, you are already charged with this. How are you just going to do this again? The case was dropped when the boy failed to appear in court. In 1972, John was charged with battery. The case never went to trial. That same year, Timothy Jack McKay was 15 years old when John picked him up at a bus shelter. The two spent the night together. Later, John stabbed him to death. John later claimed that this was just all accidental and it was just self-defense. He didn't mean to kill him. He was not arrested for the murder. The world just believed that the kid disappeared, and John was seen as the perfect neighbor. And that's really sad, because, like, he was 15. But I also have a question. Where is the wife in all this? Like, how do you just have a kid over without your your wife questioning? And she had two kids from previous marriage that lived with them, too. So it's like, where is she and where are the kids at this point? That you were able to bring home a minor and kill them. That's what I never understood. The neighbors really liked John. He was friendly and he hosted parties filled with 100 to 200 people on the weekends. And he would dress up as a clown and perform magic tricks um, for the kids in the neighborhood. And I think that's his way of luring kids in. He would dress up as a clown and, you know... Um, kids find clowns like entertaining right because they do magic tricks they do the balloon animals and stuff like that right things to make kids laugh but remember because of this he was known as the killer clown and i think that's really where my fear of clowns came in um because you never know who's behind all that makeup in 1974 john established his own painting decorating and construction co- company. He would hire young men to carry out his work. Boys knew him as the big man who drove the big car, had money, and a big business. By the mid-70s, John's wife started complaining about the violent mood swings. She divorced him and moved out. Now, I'm not saying that's not a good reason for a divorce, right? But that's why you divorced him? What about the, the children? Like, how, I, I still don't understand how he was able to bring home a 15-year-old and kill the 15-year-old. Like, where did, she, where did he go, right? Like, how did he dispose of this body? And, you know, people just thought this kid disappeared. I don't understand. John starts to cruise around the street of Chicago looking to pick up young men from gay districts. He was able to use the role of a police officer to pick up these men. He would have a radio, uniform badge, um, and he even put on the lights on the top of his car so he would not be suspected. Gotta say, that's really smart for that time frame, like during that time in the 70s, but also really stupid because imagine a real cop pulled up and he's like, oh, I've never met you before, right? Like, which district of police officer like police um man what is that word <laughs> uh, like basically like 
which area of the police station are you located at, right? Like, um, I'm sure, like, like, let's say, let's take LA, for example, you know, they have East LA, and then they have the LA County or whatever. It's like, I'm sure Chicago had the same thing. Like, it's not just one police, like, station, right? He would then take these young men home and torture them. Again, for a quote-unquote perfect neighbor, how does nobody suspect it? Like, how does nobody realize, oh, he's got some guy with him? Or, hmm, I never saw that guy leave in the morning or later on that night. What happened to him? I don't understand. In 1975, boys began disappearing. Some were selling sex on the streets, some runaways, and some connected to John's construction business. That's a red flag. Hello, they're connected by his business. John always chose the attractive guys that he knew he himself could not be one of. So he chose guys who were good looking because he knew he was not. Because he was a bigger man. Eventually, the boys became objects for him to do as he wished. The more horrific and torturous the experience got. So he used them like they were toys. At this point in time, John had fallen into the category known as hedonistic. I could be saying that wrong. Um, serial killer, which means that this is a person who kills simply for the sexual thrill. They just like the feeling of the sexual tortures into killing. Which is really sick, by the way. I mean, I don't know all the categories out there. Um, but it, either way, it's just disgusting. Rumor starts in the gay community about the dangers of a large man with the liking for violent, sadistic sex. So it's just a rumor, right? And you know, most of the time rumors are false. So, people probably didn't think this was serious. Despite the increased number of disappearing men, the police assumed that they were just runaways or they left town. With no bodies being discovered, they were just part of the thousands found on the missing posters or like the missing persons boards or I guess back in the day when they used to have the missing persons, um, the picture and all the description on milk cartons which is really sad because like the police never looked into it and like these poor people and their families are probably like why are they not doing anything like where is my loved one march 1978 27 year old jeffrey riggle was lured to john's car by his officer to share a joint he was chloroformed and driven to john's house that's sad his own officer played in this role. After being repeat, repeatedly drugged, he eventually um, awoken and he was sprawled out under a statue in Chicago's Lincoln Park. So this time, John just dumped his body in the middle of the park. Despite Jeffrey reporting the incident, John was still never caught. Wonder why that is? John's protection from the investigation prosecution was that he was an established good citizen, he was pretty much invincible, 
from accusations that were made from young boys who were not thought of very well. Plus, to investigators, it was so out of context that someone would torture and harm young boys homosexually, giving John standing as a perfect neighbor, the businessman. Which I'm still really confused about because, like, I don't know, if if I was a police officer or investigator or whatever, and there's, like, many calls about this person, I would search them up. I would search them up, and his file will probably pull up because he was already in prison. He was sentenced 10 years in Iowa, right? So, like, I just don't understand. Like, would that not come up if you were to search his records? December 11, 1978, 15-year-old Robert Peist was working his regular job in a pharmacy. He was trying to save money towards college, and that night he was looking forward to celebrating his mom's birthday once he got off work. When his mom came to pick him up around 9 p.m., Robert told his mom that she, he needed a minute to talk to the man in the parking lot who was offering a job in construction with better pay. That was the last time anyone has seen Robert alive. Like, how sad is that? Like, your mom's the last person to see you alive besides John. And the fact that, like, and it was also her birthday. That's really sad. This boy seemed like he had his head on straight. He was trying to go to school, going to work. He was 15. He wanted to save up for college. Robert had a good family. They reported him missing and followed up with an investigation. And that was John's mistake. Picking a kid with the perfect family. The investigation is what caught him. Chief of Detectives Joseph Kozenzak received the report. When he arrived at the pharmacy, the pharmacy owners told him that they hired a a contractor who was to do repair work in the pharmacy. They hand over the information card with the phone number. So while Joseph's team is chasing the phone number, Joseph ends up determining, like, he finds out the full name of this person and the address. And this was the first time they've ever heard of John Wayne Gacy. So they head to his home to question him. John's home had a diamond-shaped window on the front door. When Joseph knocked on the door, um, from a reflection of the window, he could see someone staring back at him, but no one came to the door. So Joseph and his team decided to go to the side of the house, and through the window, Joseph can see John sitting and watching TV while drinking. When they finally got his attention, John was very uncooperative. He was nervous, and... Um, because of that, they suspected that John knew more than what he was actually telling them. So they decided to search the house. During the search, detectives find a concealed void beneath the house. And the crawl space was hidden in a secret trap door in a closet. And they had to take a screwdriver to pry it open. But when they pried it open, the whole floor lifted. Joseph went down to this crawl space with a flashlight and he didn't see anything but they were still feeling like oh this guy is hiding something so they placed a 24-hour surveillance watch on john 
And at this point, neighbors are like whispering and they're like questioning, like, how come the detectives are with him and stuff like that? He's the perfect neighbor, da 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 da. So John would tell his friends and neighbors that they were the FBI and they're his bodyguards because he's such a great businessman and he's so like, um, he was being targeted as the person doing these horrible things. So he would, he was still putting up that act. So during this 24 hour watch, John slowly starts breaking down psychologically. He couldn't maintain this, um, day to day, um, facade. So they searched their, his home again while, um, he was at work, right? And police never found bodies. They did find a stash of personal possessions, um, that John had collected as trophies and when police ID'd all these victims all the missing people show up um at this point detectives were like okay there has to be something in the crawl space so let's go down there again Robert Edgar was the first prosecutor on the scene the first body was examined and everyone was waiting for the excavation um so he found one body and there was a lot of water in the crawl space so they had to get a technician out just to make sure you know obviously um and the technician reached down and he got a hold of a rib cage so now body parts are being placed in body bags after the first one was found, the technician is still, like, you know, down there. And he's, like, trying to figure out what's going on. And he yells, hey, I've got another rib cage down here. At this point, everybody's like, holy shit. Th- this is why we never saw anything. Because when you first come into the crawl space, you don't see anything. Because it's, so, it's filled with water. And unless you reach down, you wouldn't, you know. This house would become one of the most infamous houses in America just because of this. Now, John kept these bodies in the crawlspace because it was his way to keep control after his victims died. And by the end of that day, there was a total of 29 bodies found under his crawl space and all 29 bodies belonged to young men that were missing now i don't know if houses still do crawl spaces nowadays like this 2021 i don't know my house doesn't have any um uh i i don't know how big they can get but holy crap 29 bodies Again, I'm going to say, how did his wife not notice? Like, how come, where did your friend go? Where, like, you know, like, that that kid you brought home, like, where did he go? Like, why was that not questioned? And also, I'd be like, what are you doing down there all the time? John was arrested, and in custody, John confessed to it all, strangling, except his first victim. He still claimed that that was self-defense, and it was an accident. The neighbors were shocked, and even after everything that they found, the 29 bodies, um, the 
all the some of the possessions and stuff. The neighbors still claim that John wouldn't hurt anybody. He's always had parties. He's always had people over. He's a great businessman. He's like the family man. He's he's the perfect neighbor. He would not hurt a fly. Boy, were they wrong. Even Ray, remember Ray, his former cellmate? Um, yeah, even he was shocked. None of the bodies that were pulled out of that crawl space belonged to Robert. Remember the 15-year-old that went missing after work? Um, his body was discovered in April of 1979, and he was killed the night of his abduction. Um, John had ran out of space in his crawl space under the house, so instead he just threw Robert over the bridge and into the Dust Plains River. And then he confessed that three other bodies suffered the same fate. Again, I'm going to ask, how that nobody, you're over a bridge, which means there are cars. How did nobody realize what the fuck you were doing? How did nobody go, why does he have a body? Why is he like, hello? Like, I would have so much questions if I was driving by and I saw that. February 6th, 1980. 37-year-old John Wayne Gacy stood trial for the murders of 33 young men. He, and he did not fight about um, his mental state. He didn't play that card. He admitted that he knew what he was doing and he understood all the consequences to it. March 13, 1980, John was found guilty and to serve 12 death sentences and on top of that, 21 natural sentences which means regular life sentences, just 21 of them. And they asked why he did it, and his reasonings were when he was sexually, um, I guess, like, abusing them or harassing them and, and threatening them, he was scared that the kids would expose him. And then other kids threatened to expose him, and that and then his third reason was they were all human trash anyways because they were all these kids that if they were really important, I guess, their families would have done something about it and police wouldn't have thought they, they, they were just the missing kids or missing people that just ran away and they wouldn't have just been on milk cartons. Everyone except for Robert. Robert's family was like, no, we want to follow up. Which is great. I mean, his family, although it was very sad and tragic, at least they got some closure. May 10th, 1994, after 14 years on death row, John was executed by lethal injection. And that is the story of John Wayne Gacy. And, um, yeah, he did shitty things. And, but I still somewhat blame the dad because the dad abused him and told him he wasn't good enough and that took a toll on him and I think that's what caused him to be like this because if the dad abused him and he probably thought oh it's fine if I do the same thing to young boys I mean it wasn't fine obviously and it's not ever okay but I think the dad took a big toll on why he did what he did but at the end of the day 
he's still guilty. He chose to be like that. Nobody forced him. Yeah. Until next time. Bye.